Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. Welcome to episode 95 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Mr. Kim Glant on the show with us today. Kim, in his career, has worked on some of the most advanced jet fighter aircraft we've seen. Most impressively, he's played a key role in two major excellence transformations within two of our largest organisations globally. I'm so looking forward to the conversation with Kim today as he's played a part in achieving something not many people do, practically helping two large organisations transform and sustain an excellence journey. Let's get into the episode. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brad. Yeah, appreciate it, Kim. I've been keen to get you on for a while. Kim, what's your backstory, mate? Like what significant moments throughout your career sort of paved you down this path of enterprise excellence? Um, I, I think it started with, um, with my upbringing, Brad. I mean, I, I was born in Kalgoorlie, um, eastern goldfields of WA. Um, grew up in Canberra, which was a, um, a brand new booming nickel town. Um, so my early years were heavily influenced by mining um, and my, my early passion was sport. Um, as with any, any kids in the bush, there's not a lot of opportunities out there. The best way to actively engage is play sport. So um, got engaged in that. Um, but I think in terms of life influence, I mean, when you grow up in a small town, um, you learn very quickly that um, if, if you have problems, you've got to find ways to resolve them quickly because everyone knows everyone else. <laughs> if you don't fix them quickly, um, they just get worse. Yeah, too true. I can relate to that, mate, growing up in, in Ilimba where I grew up. There's also an element of it, isn't there? You've, you've got to improve and you've got to make it happen yourself too, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's pretty easy to see that everything is an opportunity because um, you're, you're building stuff from scratch. Yeah, it's neat. It's neat. Again, where, where did you start on your career side of things, like working into, um, you know, career and business side of things? Um. It's really hard to put my finger on um, where it actually started. Um, I think one of the inherent the well, inherent capabilities that people like us have is um, that growth mindset where no matter where you are, what you're doing or what sort of role you have, um, you're always looking to make it better. Um, it's, it's not something you consciously do, it's just part of your makeup. Um, so you're always asking questions around, you know, why do we do this? Um, why do we do it this way? And then over time, as you build confidence and build competence in the work that you're doing, um, you just naturally work towards making it better. Um, and I think people who can do that, um, and I think the key there is um, um, thinking scientifically, you know, the old plan, do, check, act, um, it's, it's pretty reliable. It's, it serves us pretty well. Um, we're fallible as human beings. So as soon as you lock in those, you know, simple, basic tools, 
um, and, and ways of working, you, you can't help but improve and, and do good things. Yeah, I could imagine. And like him, you know, part of your career there was working on uh, fighters and things like that. Like I'm sure there were some massive challenges and things you had to work on or unknown problems to experiment through there. Yeah. The Air Force and the RAC in general, um, it, it was, I would describe it as a learning journey my whole career. I did 25 years in the RAF. Um, started as a, a technician um, on the on the flight line, um, operational fast jets with the RAF. Um, we were continually learning technically um, and, and practically. Um, and, and out of that grew um, leadership development and career development. Um, one of the things Defence is very good at is um, developing its people. So just when you got comfortable, they would give you a new challenge and you'd continue to grow. Um, and it was a, a great environment to be in. And, you know, when you bring scientific thinking to that environment, um, you do stand out. Yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine. Which bases were you at, Kim, throughout the time there? Um, it was predominantly uh, F-111s at Ambling. Um, and I pretty much went through the ranks there from uh, technician up to engineer. Um, and my last role at Ambling was... Um, supporting the fleet um, as a systems engineer. Oh, neat. Yeah, I've been out to Amberley many years ago and it was amazing seeing F-111s flying around the place. Unbelievable. Yeah, it, it was a great jet. It was revolutionary for its time. Um, and over the course of its life in the RAF, it, it actually left the RAF as a more capable aircraft than, than it started. It went through a, a midlife upgrade program um, where they upgraded all the technology. Um, that was over my period of time at Ambly working with the F-111, so I got to see it all happen and participate. Um, so, yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah, would have been mega. I remember seeing one out there once with its um, outside casing off, you know, the um, shell off, and it just looked like, a, looked like a muscle, the amount of wires and stuff going through there. I couldn't believe it. It, it was um, it was it had a semi-monocoque airframe, which meant all the strength was in the in the skin of the aircraft. Um, and they had to do that because everything inside the airframe, air as you said, was just crammed in. Um, and when you think about it, um, I like to quote the numbers because it just astounds people. But the size of the aircraft with the wings swept forward, it, nose to tail, wingtip to wingtip and height of the fin, it's the same physical size as a 737 um, mm. in terms of footprint on the ground when it's parked. Um, but the aircraft, its maximum takeoff weight is 50 tonnes um, and it could do two and a half times the speed of sound. So, yeah, awesome achievement. Yeah, amazing, amazing aircraft. Kim, how, how did you make your way to Airbus and, and start to get involved in their transformation journey there? Um, my last role in the RAF was um, as an airworthiness regulator and as a new program starting up in Australia, um, the Airbus Tiger program, which was the uh, rotary wing attack helicopter that um, the Australian Defence Force had just bought, uh, that was going to be built in Brisbane. Um, any new program that um, enters the capability um, and enters as a new product. Um, so they were 
obviously quite concerned about the um, airworthiness um, impacts of that. So they started their own department within Airbus um, to guide their acquisition program through that um, initial phase. And, and that's um, when I joined the company. Um, and I, I talked before about um, when we were chatting before we started about uh, how quickly we grew, because I think that's when we first met. Um, I think I just joined Airbus um, and, and we um, pretty much doubled in size um, in the first 12 months. Um, and when organisations go through that growth, um, you then got to consider not just the products and services that you're delivering, but the capabilities of the organisation itself. Um, and that's when the role started to expand out of just their worthiness to, you know, my, my natural tendency, which was an, an improvement. So it went through um, a quality role first, um, and quality has always had a, an element of improvement associated with it, but um, my real passion was improvement. So um, ended up turning that role into an imp um, in solely improvement-focused role. Yeah, that's neat. Kim, I know that you know you and I met back around that time, and I know that you were focused heavily in the team on a sustainable journey and transformation, and you're following the the Shingo model. How did that come about to get on that path? Because it's not common, especially early on in the journey. You know, most times it's all about tools and techniques, but yep. you guys, right from early on, were taking a different path. Yeah, I, to be honest, but I think we had um, we're quite fortunate. Um, we engage with. Um, SA Partners and Chris Butterworth in particular um, very early on. Um, and it's, it's one of the things I would encourage um, any organisation to do when they're starting out on their transformation. Um, you know, th there is a, a limit to your knowledge threshold at that stage and you do need guidance. Uh, but once you kick it off and gain momentum, then, you know, you pull it all in-house, uh, make it sustainable and self-sustainable. Um, and, and that's the approach we took. But we, we, we did start with, with help and that was, that was definitely a key part of, um, of our journey. Yeah, it's neat. I think I've experienced the same. And I know, Kim, jumping ahead a bit, you've been through that similar journey now with BHP, you know, helping that journey go forward. And, mate, with, with these journeys, what do you see as the key element, particularly in a really big company? Like you talk Airbus and BHP. They're not small companies. Like what would you say are the key elements to really taking a journey in these companies that can transform such a large organisation but also make it stick? Yeah, well, one of the things they had in common is um, both transformations, um, both at Airbus and BHP, um, had, a, had a clear strategic outcome in mind uh, at Airbus. Um, it was around the five elements of strategy that, that they wanted to progress. So um, customer satisfaction, safety and quality, competitiveness, um, and our people and a new way of working. Um, and BHP's transformation is very similar. Um, you know, introducing an operating system focused on the customer, uh, pursuing operating perfection and empowering our people. Um, so both had clear links to strategy. Um, customer, our people, and both involved strong, active leadership by the executive because it was their it was their strategy that they were deploying. Wow! So in both cases, you've been the executive has been on board and played a big part right from the get go. They have, yeah, active sponsorship, um, not just in kicking it off. So 
it wasn't a matter of just, um, you know, blowing the whistle, starting the game. Um, they were in the game all the way through. But they were players. Yeah, that's neat. What what ingredients do you think helped that happen, Kim? You know, with getting those executives in the game right from the start and them owning it? Um, I, I think that was down to um, very effective coaching at the start and being clear on what their role was in the transformation. Um, quite often... Leaders see their role as um, just passive support, you know, um, tacit approval to go off and, and do good stuff. Whereas what the organisation needs is constant engagement from those leaders and in particular role modelling. Um, so, you know, if, we, if we're changing people and trying to change behaviour, um, the best example is to have leaders demonstrate that out in the business every day. Yeah, that's neat. So the two parts there you mentioned, you've got you coached and engaged the leaders and were very clear with the role they had to play right from the start. And then rapidly off of that, you had them skilled out and starting to role model the behaviors. I guess that's that whole saying, isn't it? You know, people, people take note and do what people do, not what they say typically, particularly in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Kim with it um, after that, with both journeys where you've got the senior leadership involved, and then they're really starting to role model and exude the behaviors that are critical to an excellence journey. What other ingredients were critical that you found actually help the journey continue and get better? Yeah, so there's, there's typically a whole bunch of excitement and engagement at the start. Um, then, you know, the, the real learning and the real work starts. Um, and to maintain, that, to maintain that momentum, you do have to, um, for a period, supplement people's ability to engage in that new way of working. So we did have specialist coaches um, within the company who worked with our teams. Um, but as well as, as well as the coaching, we're also developing the systems that allowed us to sustain those behaviours. Um, so when we're embedding a culture, we're also embedding the ability to sustain that culture in the systems we had in our business. So um, it was a very coordinated approach. It wasn't just, you know, we'll change this and change that. It was um, quite connected. Yeah, that's neat. So I guess those coaches embedded in the company helped to train and skill up and start to form habit throughout the organisation. But what are the systems that you'd see, Kim, that are critical to actually starting to make it stick and throw the energy at it to keep it going? Um. Yeah, I, I don't think we did anything different. I think it was the common um, stuff that you see in organisations um, um, undertaking transformations like ours. So, you know, it, it was the simple tools at the start, like um, visual management and problem solving, um, and then add to that a coaching framework. Um, and depending on, you know, the outcome that you're chasing with your transformation, you just add the systems and tools that you need um, to produce those outcomes, um, particularly in terms of the behaviour required to um, sustain performance. Yeah, I can imagine. I guess you and I both with that background, the Shingo side, the behaviours and focusing on that area is so critical, isn't it, rather than purely the tools and techniques. When I was first involved in deploying enterprise excellence, I gained so much from being able to connect with global experts like Chris Butterworth, Alex Tio, and Peter Hines. 
They shared their knowledge, but they also inspired me to keep moving forward and played a big part in what I'm doing now. We can now offer this same opportunity to many of our listeners. We are currently forming the Enterprise Excellence Community. This community is for people practically deploying an excellence journey within their enterprise. The community allows us to link directly with our world's experts each month to learn and grow for an hour. We already have Jeff Sutherland, Jeff Leiker, Pascal Dennis, Laurent Sommer, and Lewis Trigger confirmed for the coming months. For the final hour of the gathering, we then link in small groups with our peers to help each other overcome challenges and continue to move forward towards our vision of excellence and goals within our organization. To get involved or gain more information, reach out via our website, enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com backslash contact. We look forward to talking to you soon and working together with our world's experts and each other to create a better future. Kim, what have you found effective to actually be able to track, measure, and observe those behaviors and know, are we getting better or not better throughout a journey? Yeah, it's another common element to um, both programs, and it's pretty much my core work now with BHP, um, uh, maturity assessments. So um, a program of um, assessments where you visit um, individual sites and teams um, and assess how they're progressing along the journey. Um, You're assessing against a known um, benchmark. So BHP uses an international benchmark. Um, Airbus used an internal one, Um, but it it was well known um, by the operations. They were familiar with our visits. A little clunky at the start because it um, it was unfamiliar, but once they started to see the benefits of engaging and um, the benefits that we could bring to their program. Um, I think at Airbus, when we first started, we envisaged we'd be doing these maturity assessments um, about every two years um, because the results of the assessments aligned with the midpoint of a five-year plan. So it was seen as a key input into that plan. Um, but um, very quickly, that time frame came down and we were doing them annually. And um, for new parts of the business, um, where we bought, had bought in new products or even new, uh, bought out smaller companies and introduced them to um, into our structure, uh, we would do those at more frequent um, periods, so similar to what we're doing now, so every six months. So it really did depend on um, the business need as to the type of assessments that we did. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And how you've, you've increased the frequency depending on the maturity or length of tenure of that team. Like Kim, for me and for a lot of the audience, I think the ticking the box of having the executive engaged early and top job with that, with both companies achieving that, and then executive leading the behaviors and demonstrating the behaviors is just like a brilliant lay down mazette to have in play. But I think for many, this rhythm of ongoing, actively measuring and tracking the maturity, getting down to behaviors may be quite new for a lot of listeners. Why is that important, mate? What does that do and what does it avoid having that type of system running? Um, well, I think the key link, and it's, it, it comes out in Shingo in all of the literature, it's about sustainable performance. And we talk about continuous improvement um, and we talk about improving performance, but um, lots of people can do that, but they can't always sustain it. Um, so these sort of um, maturity assessment programs are an important element 
of um, it, it's like tuning up your car, right? So you're tuning up your improvement system um, by doing these regular checks, um, providing feedback and, uh, and helping teams improve uh, the way they're working. When you think about it, mate, there's that old saying, isn't there? What gets measured gets done. Yeah. But often it doesn't get applied to excellence journeys. It's like, it's like it can become a bit of a, a floating journey for many that can then fall in a heap. But like for me, when you say that, mate, it just makes me go, okay, yeah, I get that. You know, what you're trying to achieve an excellence journey, you're going to have some sort of way of measuring behavior and the systems that you, you're looking to become great at and what gets measured gets done. Yeah. Kim, what part does um, senior leadership play then through this part where there's a, the routine of measuring and adaption going on? What, are they still critical throughout this part, would you say, or not so critical? Um, so it, it's probably a case where their role changes, Brad. So at the start, um, their, their engagement is like everyone else in BHP, we treat our senior leaders as a natural work team. So we do assessments with them as well. Um, so they're familiar with the process. They're familiar with seeing us pitch up and, and talk to them about the way they're working and providing feedback. Um, but as the, as the program matures, what we're hoping to do is rather than do assessments of leadership teams is do assessments with leaders. So we get them out in the business um, out of the boardroom and the C-suite and into the, into the business that they're leading. So they get to see and share the insights that we see when we conduct assessments. That's cool. Actually, they're becoming assessors and getting out there and learning from, I guess, different sites or their own site. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's the ultimate um, version of Gemma, right? Yeah. And you have to explore these topics deeply, don't you? Like to be able to actually make sure you assess correctly and calibrate correctly and know that you're actually giving it. You have to think about it deeply. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've heard um, um, some of the thought leaders for these sorts of programs talk about, you know, the whole purpose of an assessment. Um, it's, it's not an audit, you know, it's not a check. You're not measuring people. Um, you really are trying to help and, and you're doing that by providing insights into stuff that they won't see because they're in the environment every day that they become familiar with it and comfortable with it. And it's not so someone else comes along from outside um, that say, sees the obvious opportunities that people within the environment um, just don't have the capability to, to detect. Oh, that's, that's powerful. You're saying really that fresh set of eyes coming in provides a new perspective, but yeah. it's not so much just getting a, a score back, you know, a one to five rating or a, uh, percentage rating that's important it's the insights that come out of that that's a critical yep absolutely yeah that takes it to another level doesn't it from what what you know i guess i've seen before is where you're actually giving back some knowledge and insight from that fresh set of eyes looking at the um whichever area of the business you're reviewing yeah absolutely so kim with it mate we're talking executive engagement and leadership right from the start executives leading the behaviors and and exuding them out of the gate coaches in the business to help develop capability and skill and coach and develop and then an assessment or a review journey like a pdca cycle isn't it a pdca cycle for your excellence journey that brings back provides fresh sets of eyes but brings back insights on i guess opportunities and strengths and 
and other data there. Is there anything else, mate? Are they are they the key four as you've seen it that's made you know your journeys with Airbus and BHP achieve what they've achieved? Um, yeah, I, I think it definitely is key. Um, you know, when people ask me what um, what's the differentiator in a transformation, a good place to start is is with leaders, um, and, and in particular their role in the transformation, um, and even more importantly. Um, you know, people often talk about change, um, which is fine as long as other people change and they stay the same. And one of the things you've got to make apparent to leaders is they're the ones who are going to have to change the most. Um, and, and we have discussions with leaders now around, um, you know, where they spend their time. And we get them to nominate, you know, the percentages. Um, and they're always surprised to find out that we've actually got to flip that to get to where we want to be if we want to become a high-performing organisation. Um, and, and once they realise that, then they're, they're pretty firm and committed on, on their role in the transformation. Yeah, that's brilliant. Kim, what would you say, are there any key techniques you've found for engaging leaders with this? Because I could understand it's some, it could be some pretty touchy topics for certain leaders where you're really from the start laying it out there and saying, if you want to succeed, this is what ne- what's needed. Are there any techniques that you could give to our listeners that, that have worked for you? Um, most of the really successful engagements that we've had with our leaders have, have actually been quite humble exchanges. Um, you know, we're not there as the experts to, to tell them what to do. It's just a straight conversation and it's, um, it's you know, backwards and forwards. Here's the challenge. Um, what have you tried? You know, fairly simple coaching techniques, um, and they are they are very very effective. But I think creating that environment where you you allow that humble exchange to you know discuss problems, discuss ideas, um, and and test you know a way forward is is key. Yeah, it's great. Well, Kim, mate, what would be your two minute enterprise excellence tip for our listeners in this area we've covered of? you know, transforming and helping to sustain excellence journeys in very large organisations? I'd I'd probably go back to um, what I said at the start about the start of your journey. Make sure you've got the right help. Um, Make sure you've got the right commitment from your leadership team. Um, It's, um, you know, link it to your strategy to ensure it doesn't become a fad. Um, It's got got to be... uh, um, a sustainable approach to, to changing any organisation. Um, and you're going to need support to do that. So um, build in the support mechanisms. Once you get it started, um, align your people and systems to ensure that you can sustain that the progress that you make and lock in the gains. Um, and then, as you said, it's an iterative um, PDCA cycle um, you start it all over again and and continue the journey. Yeah, that's neat, mate. It's that it's that that's where that assessment, review, and and adapt comes into play so heavily. I'm guessing. Yeah. Kim, one question I've got, mate, on what you said there. You know, locking it into strategy. How long could the strategic view need to be on this type of journey? Um. I think um, I'm just looking back for common themes between the two organisations that I've been with recently. Um, and, and the one thing 
I guess the, that immediately springs to mind is the strategy was fairly consistent, right, quite long-term, uh, but what did change were the targets, so the expectations from the program. Um, and I think both organisations did it fairly well. They, they set achievable targets at the start, and then once they could see their capability was becoming, becoming effective, they would move the target, um, set a stretch target. But now those stretch targets weren't scary because people had the capability to pursue them. Um, there was less fear involved. There was more confidence um, and, and clearly more ability to deliver it because both organisations are, are on track. Yeah, it's neat. So it can be that, you know, that one strategic horizon where you're chasing a goal and then it can go into another strategic horizon and keep going on. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, wow. That's really cool. Mate, what's been a recent insight for you, Kim? What's been a recent learning that you've had, something you didn't know before? Uh, it's, it's really hard to choose just one. I mean, most of what we do is, is that very thing every single day, provide insights and inspire people to improve. It's the, it's the team's purpose. Um, I think... Uh, I'll go back to that um, scientific thinking, Brad, and, and um, plan, do, check, act. Um, what, what we see in a lot of businesses early on is lots of planning and doing, but very little checking and acting. Um, and, and in particular, when we come along where um, we get to do that in spades and provide them that feedback and they see the gap and um, in, engage in the way we, we think and look at the way people work, um, it... it it contributes to the change that they have to make. Yeah, it's great. I, I really get that whole PDCA scientific thinking coming through the whole theme of this episode right from early on for you, mate. It was a good grounding that you had in that regard. Kim, I want to I thank you, mate. Thank you for everything you have done with organizations in the past and what you're continuing to do going forward. Mate, how, how can people reach out to you and, and get in touch if they want to with a question or anything like that? Um, contactable via LinkedIn. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also active in the local improvement networks here in Brisbane. Um, so ha happy to engage. Great, Kim. Well, thank you so much, mate. Thanks for coming on the show and thanks for helping us create a better future, mate. Bye for now. No problem. Cheers, Brad. What a great episode. There were two good takeaways for me from this episode with Kim. The first was getting executive sponsorship and support. Now, he's done an amazing job with the previous companies he's worked with in achieving this, and that creates an amazing leadership shadow of support for the program. It also allows you, I guess, to create the outcome where the executive and through the leadership channels are actually leading the journey and making it stick and sustain and become part of culture. Without achieving this, you really can't achieve a cultural change without that leadership shadow from the top all the way through. So amazing job, Kim. The other aspect was the conversations around maturity assessment you know, what gets measured gets done. And Kim, in both aspects of his career, has really helped set up a really great maturity index assessment review that's not been seen like a top-down type dominant approach, but more a collaborative engagement to look at where are we currently at and then how do we move forward and then how can we help you move forward. I really love the work that Kim's achieved. You know, he's a practitioner. He's achieved it in the job in massive companies. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks again, Kim. Thanks for helping us create a better future. Bye for now.